Looking for practical information to help you make decisions about your diagnosis, whether DCIS, early or metastatic breast cancer? BCNA's My Journey features articles, webcasts, videos and podcasts about breast cancer during treatment and beyond to help you, your friends and family as you progress through your journey. It also features a symptom tracker to help you manage the changing symptoms you may encounter during your own breast cancer experience. My Journey. Download the app or sign up online at myjourney.org.au. Let's be upfront about caring for a loved one with breast cancer. Many Australians diagnosed with breast cancer will have a partner, a family member or a friend who provides regular support, personal care or assistance to them, both during and after treatment. There's almost 2.7 million carers in Australia, but many people who provide support to someone with breast cancer don't see themselves as a carer, especially if the person with breast cancer is a partner, a child or a close family member. Today we're talking with Stuart Diver. Stuart was the sole survivor of the 1997 Threadbow landslide, which killed 18 people, including his first wife, Sally. He found love again with his second wife, Rosanna. However, she was diagnosed with breast cancer shortly after they returned from their honeymoon. And Stuart cared for her until she died from metastatic breast cancer in 2015. Stuart is still living in Threadbow, where he is raising his and Rosanna's young daughter, Alicia. Caring for the carer. So you were... Rosanna's carer on, well, right throughout the journey, but it took on different roles. So can you take us through her diagnosis and uh, when it came back? I mean, it's, yeah, it's it's interesting in the beginning. I mean, Rosanna was diagnosed, uh, yeah, the week after we got back from our honeymoon, which was not the, uh, the greatest timing. Um, and then, uh, yeah, obviously... From my point of view, you very much just click into survival mode then and you just, and I know that a lot of people have the same experience, you're just trying to say, what can we do about treatment? I want my partner to live. What can I throw at it? What are the resources we can go? So it's a very much a very physical sort of thing is, you know, there's surgeries and then there's treatment and there's chemotherapy and it goes on and on and on. And I think for that initial period, um, you know, both Rosanna and I were in that phase. So it's a very hands-on caring phase. Um, in, and that I think that lasts, you know, for those months, if not the first couple of years until you get through that. Um, and then once you're through that and it sort of levels out, it very much then switches to a real emotional um, caring phase and I think that that's where sometimes we sort of get lost because people think oh the treatment's finished so therefore you're cured and life moves on but the reality is it actually in a lot of ways just gets harder and I think that that's um, the bit that I really struggle with I think that males we're really good at the survival mode and we're really good at the hands-on mode but then when you get into that long-term care for someone and Rosanna basically had you know another almost 10 years um, yeah before the the cancer returned um, and that's a long period of time to go through being a carer. Yeah, being a carer. So in the initial stage so in 2002 she was first diagnosed as you said just after your honeymoon. When she was diagnosed with early breast cancer, what was your role as a carer then in that first part? 
Well, I mean, the first part is you really are. You're driving to hospital, you're going and seeing specialists, you're doing that sort of stuff, you're making sure that, you know, the, her, the you know, Rosanna's physical um, health is in good shape. That's basically what you're doing. And you really are just providing that support role and you're providing meals and you're making sure that, you know, you can go to the gym and you can get outdoors and do all of that sort of stuff. So it really is a very much a, a physical role. Um, there's obviously an emotional role there as you're having a normal relationship, but it really is focused on that side. But it still does take a toll on um, you as the carer, obviously, because you are then having this focus as well as everything else that's going on in your life. And, you know, I, we didn't have children at that time, so it was just the two of us. Um, but it, there was still a... There, there was an enormous amount of work in that, providing that support role. So, and I think that that's where I was lucky. I had uh, good family around me and good friends, so I was able to talk about stuff. I was able to get support. I was able to go out and have some time for myself, you know, during that period, which I think is really crucial. And I mean, and that's, this will be, as you know, Kelly, this will be a theme, you know, throughout our discussion today. I'm a big advocate of, um, you know, getting professional mental health support. I had a great psychologist um, at that time and he's been with me for over 20 years now and, you know, I basically came in contact with him, you know, after the landslide in Threadbow and uh, he has been with me all the way through and I definitely used him uh, during those, even those early stages with Rosanna. I mean, I, I would have, after a diagnosis, I would have called him three days later because as we know, you know, that is the really devastating time when you've got no idea. And we all instantly think cancer, the person's going to die. And I was thinking, you know, I've lost my first wife and now I've just married my second wife and now she's going to die. And you don't realise that actually that's more than likely not the case <laughs> and you are going to have, you know, a, a much longer period and hopefully forever together if it works out. Would you suggest that even with an early breast cancer diagnosis that... Um, some mental health support would be beneficial because yeah. most people think, oh, it's just early breast cancer, you know. Oh, it'll be fine, we'll get through it. And, we, and, I, and I think, you know, with increasing survival rates and all of that sort of stuff, it does sort of take on, oh, no, you'll be fine and you'll get through it and, you know, it'll all be good. I, th I mean, it's equally as traumatic and the hard bit is... It's, it's, it's really good to go and talk to your friends. It's really good to talk to family. But that only gets you through up to a certain point. And it's, you know, I use the analogy, if you break your leg, um, you know, you don't go down to the local hardware and buy some plaster and go home and just wrap it up and say, oh, it's going to be fixed. I mean, you go and see a doctor and you get an X-ray and you do that. And that's the same as this. And, it, and it's not necessarily just for the person who and has been diagnosed with the cancer. It's also, you, you can't surprise you can't provide support to that person if you're not in a good state of mental health yourself. And I think that's where we miss it. So we try and do that. The carers put themselves out there. They throw everything at it. Six months in, you're totally drained and you're just going, not realising that this could then go on forever. And I think, you know, the, the biggest thing is anyone who's gone through a similar journey knows it's the uncertainty of what's going to happen. So you don't know if it's going to come back. You know, it's every three months and you're going and getting your test done and are they going to come back clear that that constant nagging in the back of your mind takes a huge emotional toll and so and there's you know and that's where with my psychologist there was a myriad of ways you know through all the stages of Rosanna's journey that um, we use different tools to be able to deal with that and that's hugely important. You mentioned before that you know you made sure to take time out for yourself and I'd imagine that it becomes especially in the early stages of any diagnosis, that it's all-consuming. 
Yeah, absolutely. And, and it is. And I mean, and one of the big things that I did was physical exercise. Like I, I love the outdoors and that's, and it still is to this day, that's my form of meditation. So I'll go out and I'll go for a long bike ride or a long walk or whatever I do. Um, and that is the way that I clear my mind, reset my brain, and then I can come back in. And one of the big things is, you know, if you're in and out of hospitals, you're driving, like we obviously lived in, in uh, regional New South Wales. So you're driving two and a half hours to get treatment. You're in, you're sitting around and you're basically, you know, very sedentary for a lot of that time. So to stay physically fit is crucially, it was, you know, crucial for Rosanna as well. We used to do a huge amount of stuff even when she was having treatment. Um, but a lot of that was actually involved around um, being able to process things mentally and clear your mind and then come back in. And you know, when you get the endorphins flying around your body after exercise, it's a beautiful feeling. And that's sort of, you know, that was a big part of that, um, you know, of that therapy as well. Well, I'd imagine it also makes you a better carer if you can step away and come back in otherwise it's yeah absolutely I mean and, and there's not, it's not saying that you know I didn't go down to the pub and have beers with the you know my mates and you know and chat about that sort of stuff but the reality is you're not really going to go down to the pub have beers with your mates and talk about your wife's breast cancer I mean that is even in this day and age is you know an, an unlikely topic that's going to come up um, so yeah the reality is you are on your own and you are yeah you're really trying to process, your, process it yourself or with your partner um, and when it's just two of you that can become you know at times really difficult to do and that's where I always say you know the psych my psychologist Rosanna ended up seeing my psychologist as well and we do joint sessions we do sessions separately which works really well because there's obviously stuff that you can't talk about to each other there's stuff that you know comes up that can be really difficult you know as you go through those stages um and so yeah that was you know for me was the absolute key when you're seeking support you've talked to, about the importance of it yeah. and we know traditionally men are not so great at doing that. I know you speak from personal experience about the benefits of a psychologist, but you did try other ways first. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I mean, I think as you know, as all good Australian males do, we try and, um, or all males do, we try and, or a lot of us, we try and get, uh, we try and go, we try and do it ourselves because that's what we've been taught that you must stand up, be strong, and go forth and do it yourself. So you try to, and, and the the easiest way that we do it is we'll go out and we'll drink, and so you know you do that, and that'll be awesome, and that'll, but it doesn't work. Or um, it numbs the, the pain. Term. It numbs it the pain, it, yeah. and then the problem is that the bloke crying in the pub um, is not actually... He's drunk and crying and that's not the same as being sober and emotionally crying and actually... Be the, and then the next day you wake up with a slight hangover and you're dealing with your hangover and you're dealing with your partner again and then you just get back into the and same cycle. so it's cycle. just that... It's that yeah, layer up and layer up and layer, And it elevates. It? And yeah. what we've got to realise is that it's not... It's actually not... It's not about us, the carers, you know. In, but in, it sort of is, isn't it? it? It is to a degree, but it's not. And so it's it's about the person who is, you know, who has cancer and is trying to survive. That's the number one bit. But then to be able to do what we need to do as a carer and as a partner, but, you know, a, a, anyone who's a carer, you need to make sure that you're in the absolute best condition that you can be. So if you're drinking heavily, if you're not exercising, if you're doing all that stuff, then obviously that then becomes about you because you're the one out there drinking, you're the one thinking that you're doing the right thing but you're not. Then you build more pressure on yourself and then you get into you don't turn up to work and then you start all of these things start to spiral. So what I'm saying is that it is about the carers but if you can keep the focus of it's really about 
that person who's going through the cancer and them surviving, how can you best provide support for that? The only way you can do that is if you're in the absolute best condition you can be, and that's physically and emotionally. And so if you're not giving yourself the best opportunity to do that, then that's where you fall down. And so and that's what happened, you know, to me. I you know, I admit early on definitely would, you know, go out it sort of was more after Sally had died in the landslide that I did that, that I really went out heavily. Um, and that was my way of dealing with it. And I really didn't, I had no real mental health care after the landslide for, until about six, month, uh, six months afterwards. And that's when I hit the wall. And I think that people would find that same experience in caring with someone with breast cancer, because that first six months, as we've discussed, is so full on and so hectic. And then you fall off the edge at that. And I think that that's where a lot of carers struggle. And that's they where- They get to breaking yeah. point before yeah. they actually see And we always... And, yeah. and that's what happens because that's human nature. We'll, we'll try and do it ourselves until we get to that point. My advice is to don't. And it's not necessarily about seeing a psychologist, you know, first off. It's it's about maybe just talking to a counsellor. There's lots of other support, you know, groups out there. It might just be getting into a group of carers, you know, three or four of you and talking about your experience and sharing those experiences. So you don't necessarily, you know, need to go all the way to the, to the top rung straight away. Yeah. But you've got to be also aware enough of yourself and your own emotional um, well-being that when you see those signs that you are drinking too much or you are avoiding going out even or you're doing you know, any changes in who you are um, emotionally or in your behaviour is a, is a signal to say there's something going on here and, you know, go and get some help for it. And that and for me it was um, it was drinking. It was, I had no problem being social and being out there and doing all that sort of stuff because that's what I It was I almost do. like a this is not happening type thing. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, you yeah. double up and away you go. And that's what we do because we try and block it out. Yeah. But you're never going to do it. So whether it's in the initial stages of, you know, diagnosis or whether you, you're carrying it's going to get you. metastatic cancer, it's going to get you at some point. Yeah. And, so, and you can either do as – and that's the big one, you know, and I talk about that with Rosanna, you know, before she died. It's hard work getting mental um, – health help from wherever it is is hard work it's not easy you know and you've got to put yourself through it but it's like it's like physically training you can't expect to just go out and ride a bike a thousand kilometres it doesn't work you have to put in the training and mentally it's the same you know I read something yesterday about resilience which I always the word sort of grates on me a little bit but we need to be resilient we need to be more resilient in our society but you only become really resilient if you actually practice and so you can't just say, oh, I was born resilient. People say, you know, and I was, you know, I admit it, you know, I'm mentally strong. I've been through lots of things in my life and that all adds into and that has probably made me more resilient. But if I just go, yeah, whatever, and don't actually think what is it that makes me resilient, what is it that makes will make Alessia resilient, how are we going to do that? So whether it's taking Alessia, the other day we went on a big eight-kilometre walk in Threbo, we came back to get on the chairlift to go down, the chairlift was on wind hold, so it was stopped. So I made Alessia walk two kilometres straight down the lift line, which is really steep and really hard. Thanks, And Dad. we got to the bottom. Yeah, thanks, Dad. <laughs> she couldn't walk the next day. But then I thought in the back of my mind, how cool is that? Because that is building resilience in her, building resilience in me because I had to put up was she, complaining. Was she seeing that as she <laughs> so, walked? No, but this is the great thing. As an eight-and-a-half-year-old, she's never going to see it. So how yeah. awesome is that? But we as adults have to actually do that to ourselves. So when I talk about, you know, me going for a bike ride and how good that's my form of meditation, that's also my form of, you know, making me more resilient. 
again because I'm putting myself through physical pain, I'm doing all of that sort of stuff. So we need to train for that as well. And I think that that's the hard bit. It's you can say if you go and see a counsellor, you go and see a psychologist for a one hour session. If you do nothing with that afterwards, then it was the biggest waste of time and money ever. And that's the bit. You're going there to get the strategies and the tools to make your life as a carer or as a supporter and the persons who you're looking after's life better. And I think that that's, that's the real key. It's, it's not easy. It's not hard work. It's not just like, I'll take a pill and I'll feel better. That's not how it is. And I, you know, 20-odd years on after the landslide, having had multiple sessions, um, you know, with my psychologist, it is still hard work every time I talk to him. It is still, you know, I'm only talking to him because there's something not quite right going on in my life. And, and in saying that, you know, I've spoken about it before, I've had periods of five years where I haven't seen him. Okay. So it's not like yeah. this is weekly session. You haven't session. got him on speed dial. No, not at all. Okay. And, and he actually says that I should probably call him more, but I, my personality is give me the tools, I'll go away and work on it, and if it goes pear-shaped in three months, I'll come back and we'll have a look at it again. Um, he is on, he is on, I do have his number, obviously. <laughs> He's on speed dial if I need him. And it, it is amazing because, you know, Rosanna's first diagnosis, you know, first person I called, second person I called, you know, except Rosanna's metastatic, you know, diagnosis, first person I called, because they're such massive events in my life. There's, I, there's, I can't deal with that on my own. And so therefore get that. And, and in a one hour phone call to him, um, you, you, you're back where you're meant to be. You've got the tools Possibly to without not knowing it either. Absolutely. Yeah, it's, it's not like you go, oh, ping, I've got it. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah. I mean, and even now, I mean, I spoke to him a couple of weeks ago about Alessia because um, there's a few, a couple of concerns. Is it just normal develop, developmental growth with her uh, emotionally or is it something that I should be concerned about? So after an hour of that, you've got some tools on how to deal with that. You've got, you're comfortable that this is what's normal. Just let's just keep a check on this for the next six months and away you go. Now, I think that that's an awesome way of living your life because it gives me surety. I'm not relying on him as a you know as a crutch to to that I need him there every single day but it's just having that thing in the back of your mind that gives you the confidence that you're on the right track and I th- and that's the real key to mental health and 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 it's all about you know I've had some people say to me oh yeah but can't you just go and tell them whatever you want and whatever and I said yeah you'd be, you'd be crazy like it's 280 dollars <laughs> it's, it's, it's a it's big it's waste of cheap. money it's, it's, right. a, it's a fairly you know the, the wine is cheaper that's right absolutely <laughs> and the thing with that I mean yeah. it's like having that it's like having the independent umpire in your life and you can tell them anything you want I think that's the key is that the you, you can talk to your partner or you're like you can talk to your close friends one, and family yeah. or you like but the to have someone who's a third party independent of what's going on and my you know my psychologist he's he is brutal you know and he will pull me up and say hey you got that all wrong like what are you doing that is not how that's not how I see that pain now at all and you're going oh wow you know that that is great to have that person in your life and quite often friends and family will never tell you that. BCNA's Helpline provides a free, confidential phone and email service for people diagnosed with breast cancer. BCNA's experienced team will help with your questions and concerns and provide relevant resources and services. Call 1800 500 258 or email contact at bcna.org.au. So for Rosanna, after she was diagnosed... 
What were some of the things that helped her? I mean, yeah, it's funny. They're, they're very similar things in that, you know, it, it is that trying to keep your life as normal as you possibly can. So trying to keep a routine in your life, trying to get up, do what needs to be done. Because, you know, I can imagine for her the feeling was exactly the same. You know, oh, I've got cancer, I'm going to die, this is the end, what am I going to do? So once you can get through that stage, you know, and obviously once you get through the trauma of the surgeries and the chemo and everything else, um, then it really really is, oh, this is just my life now. My hair's growing back. It's back to normal. Um, everyone else has pretty well moved on, you know, so therefore I may as well just get back into my normal life. But the problem is you've still got that whole nagging thing in the background that, you know, I, I have I survived breast cancer? Is it still there with me? Is it going to come back? And I think that that's the most difficult thing because it, it, it it's just with you the whole time. So for her, I mean, I think it was great. Yeah, you know, the same thing. She had great friends around her, really good family. Um, she had, you know, but the, and, and that's great support. She had a really good psychologist and she also, you know, we kept that routine of physical exercise and of doing things in life just to make sure that it was still normal. And did she reach out to BCNA? Like, we have a lot of resources. How did that Yeah, she did, and that was, you know, in 2002 for initial diagnosis. That was very early days, and that was... um, And so, yeah, there wasn't a lot of resources around at that point in time. Um, But then as it progressed and got on, then obviously all the BCNA resources, et cetera, came online, and that was where, you know, she really did... You you find that invaluable because there is so... So you go into this one day having no idea about cancer at all, breast cancer, any cancer, and then the next day you're expected to know everything. Yeah. Or and you become an expert or, yeah, or a I'm Google expert. expert. That, Google yeah. expert. And <laughs> as we know, what happens with Google experts is it's not, a, not a good outcome in no. the end. So, yeah, to have that resource and that's, you know, obviously uh, why, you know, I'm on board with um, BCNA because that resource is just absolutely invaluable. And it gets better and better as, you know, it gets developed over the years. So, you know, I'd say now the resource is so much better than it was then, which it is because it, you know, it just has so much information. The information's correct. Um, the advocacy is there, but all of that is that's crucially important because we know that knowledge is power. Um, the more knowledge you have, whether you're a you, you're a, um, someone with cancer or whether you're a carer, is um, yeah, is what gets you through that. Because when you're sitting down with a specialist or you or you're talking to someone in the community or you're doing whatever, um, yeah, the more knowledge you have, then yeah, the more comfortable you feel about it. What we often hear from our women and men is that. Like you said, that hardest time really is after the treatment stopped, the hair's grown back and the world continues to turn and we call it handing back the vacuum cleaner. So all, all of a sudden you're left with living with cancer and everyone tends to forget. Yeah, that's right, absolutely. So that is another challenge. How do you balance that, that fear and also trying to get some normalcy yeah. Wait, yeah, I mean, it's it, it is a really tricky one because it's there, but it's because it's there the whole time. I think it's like pain. You know, people who live with chronic pain, I sort of do that comparison. It's it's there the whole time, but it's how you manage it, and so and that's where your mental health, you know, comes into it in such a big way. So if you, uh, you know, they. You can either there's two ways of doing it. You can sit around and say, "I've got, um, oh yeah, I've got cancer. Sure, it's gone away, but it's going to come back at some point, and this is the end, and it's doom and gloom." Or you can say, "That's there. I'm going to actually, it's gone away for the moment." So whether I call myself a survivor or whatever, Rosanna never used to use that term. Sort of didn't sit well with her. But what did know, she used to? 
Oh, well, she did. I mean, she she was very much, she didn't, you know, join, um, you know, groups to talk about it. She was very insular in what she did. She just, yeah, she dealt, her and I dealt with it. And that's how we sort of did. But if someone asked her, what would she have said? Yeah, well, she said, yeah, that my, yeah, my cancer's in remission. So that's okay. what she, she would say. And then, yeah, and hopefully it's, you know, going to stay away. So, but I mean, you have, you have that choice of you can either moan and groan or you can say, I'm going to embrace life. I've been given a second chance and I'll go again. And Rosanna, you know, very much did that. We did a huge amount of travelling. We did a whole lot of stuff. And obviously even uh, with all her treatment, she was, you know, told that she would, you know, was highly unlikely to be able, ever able to have a, have a baby. But we, you know, we kept on trying that and that was her bit of hope. But I mean, that came with massive complexities as well in that you know I was there sitting as you know still in some role being her carer there but definitely being you know her partner there and the one who was supporting her thinking well if you're going to have a baby and the cancer comes back then where does that leave me where does that leave me and then you end up dying and obviously that's what ended up happening yeah. but you know it's all so everything big thing or little thing in your life it just stays the whole way through with you but what you've got to do and it's the most difficult thing to do ever is you've got to say Yep, that could be the reality, but will that stop me, you know, or Rosanna and I having a child? And um, I thank, you know, thank goodness it didn't because, um, yeah, for those four and a half years that Rosanna got to spend with Alessia have been obviously formative in Alessia's life, but I know for Rosanna that was one of the greatest things ever in her life. So you'd never, ever take that away. Now you can say, yeah, and I can be selfish about it and say, yeah, now I'm left, you know, as a single parent with a... Um, with a child, but that's also been the greatest thing for me as well because, yeah. you know, that's helped me immensely as I've, you know, gone forward with her and, you know, she's eight and a half now and it's amazing. So you wouldn't you wouldn't take anything back. But it's still all of those thought processes go on. And how, how you deal with those, it's seriously, they're all, you have to isolate them, deal with each one individually, work out what the best strategy is and then move on and go from there. And we had lots of great discussions, you know, just in regards to having a baby, you know, as to was it the right thing, was it the wrong thing? You know, there's lots of moral dilemmas just in that question alone so it's um there's a lot of what ifs yeah absolutely with. and that yeah. is and that's, and that's like that is the whole yeah. biggest problem but you know the it's when you've got uh when you're living with someone who's got cancer it, the, the what ifs just become massive and they affect you know every part of your life and they you know and it's and this is the hard bit that people you know the the financial strains all of those things all build up and they all put emotional pressure on a relationship and it, you can see why you know some relationships fail under that pressure because it is yeah it's enormous and I think that um you know that's why I talk about it and you know we haven't really got onto the you know Rosanna's journey through metastatic cancer but it's um yeah that's why I talk about it because the the health and the mental health of the carer is in a lot of ways equally as important as the the health of the um you know of the person who's going through um you know suffering cancer become easy. So knowing what you know now and having done care in, on two different levels, is there anything that you would have done differently? Oh, there's always things you do differently in life. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, it's, it's an interesting one. I mean, I think that... Or is there anything... What's, what are you the most proud of? Yeah, I mean, yeah. I mean, the, the bit that you'll always find, I think, and everyone would say the same, is the, the bit 
the best thing, the best feeling ever is to being able to care for someone. And that has always been one of my fundamental beliefs is that if you can care for someone, it's absolutely rewarding. And a privilege. So, and, and a privilege. And to be able to do that, to, to be able to go through that experience, that journey with someone, yeah, as you said, really is, you know, something that's hugely significant in your life. And it sets you up as a human being to go forward and hopefully care for people. And, you know, if we said that as a society, what do we want? We want a caring society. You know, it's people's number one sort of thing. I just want to live where everyone lo- loves each other and looks after each other. So to go through that sp- experience for me has been amazing. And, you know, I always say, you know, the same thing, to go through the experience with Sally and then to have that opportunity to go through that experience again with Rosanna has, you know, it's truly been something that is so unique, you know, unique obviously for me, um, but it's it's such a unique thing and then to be able to sit here and share that with people I think is the greatest outcome of what, you know, I've been through in my life because if I didn't talk about it and I just went and sat in a dark room, then I sort of look back at that and go, well, that's a really a little bit of a waste. So, and that's why, you know, I'm involved with BCNA. That's why, you know, I love doing, um, you know, this sort of stuff and talking to people. It's because if there's one thing that can keep Rosanna's memory alive and keep the memory of how much she loved and cared for people and looked after people, you know, not just Alessia, not just myself, the one thing that'll keep all that alive is being able to talk and keep her memory alive and make sure that that gets shared. And it was funny that yesterday when um, I told Alessia what I was coming down to do today and she said, I want to come too, I want to come and talk about mummy. And I'm going, you know, eight and a half, one of the reasons, you know, when I spoke with KP originally when I was coming on board with BCNA was all about let's, um, this will be a really cool thing because at some point Alessia might want to get involved and be a great way of her keeping the memories of her mum alive. I just didn't think would be, you know, when she was eight and a half. So that's just, you know, so awesome. She wants to come to all the, the lunches, the big lunches with all the ladies, I think, because she wants to check and see if um, who the... No, There's any... <laughs> <laughs> she wants to protect me. Put, yes, no applications, please. <laughs> yes, yeah. Thanks, Stuart. No. It's been a pleasure. Upfront About Breast Cancer is a proud production of Breast Cancer Network Australia and this episode was made possible with thanks to Cancer Australia through the Australian Government's Supporting Women in Rural Areas Diagnosed with Breast Cancer Program. For more information about caring for someone with breast cancer, visit bcna.org.au. If you enjoyed this podcast, don't forget to subscribe and leaving a rating or review on Apple Podcasts really helps others find us. Until next time, I'm Kelly Curtin. Thanks for being upfront with us.